Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jones Bowden He's got it England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four and England have won the match Hello, welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. You could call this one the selection episode. We're going to talk about two different types of selection, actually, which are both very topical. Uh, The fallout from England's selection of the team to tour the West Indies, the test team to tour the West Indies, is continuing with Stuart Broad going very public about his feelings. And we're going to look at uh, that whole issue and also talk to a player, Sam Billings, who was left out of that tour, despite playing in the last Ashes Test match of the series. And later, we're going to look at the whole issue of auctions and the IPL, the big mega auction that happened over the weekend. Uh, And somebody who was very heavily involved in that, Manoj Badali, the owner of the Rajasthan Royals, they picked up a couple of interesting players in their selection picks. They had $12 million to spend. So a different sort of selection theory and, and practice going on in the IPL compared to selecting test teams. The squad that England selected to go to the West Indies, we've already discussed that in last week's podcast, Simon. But Stuart Broad was was quite um, outspoken in, in his feelings, wasn't he? He was. And one thing we talked about last week is we both looked at their, their Twitter accounts, Stuart Broad and, and Jimmy Anderson, to see whether they'd reacted to the news that they'd been left out. And you said... Well, they're both waiting for their newspaper columns. And you're absolutely right. Stuart Broad was waiting for his newspaper columns. It came out in the Daily Mail at at the weekend. And it it was pretty clear that he was utterly perplexed that he was left out. And we we haven't heard from Jimmy Anderson yet. Not sort of obviously so. Although Stuart clearly had been in conversation with him. And Jimmy Anderson seemed equally perplexed that he'd been left out as well. I mean, one question I posed last week, you, you dropped... Anderson and Broad from the squad for the Caribbean to have a look at others. I didn't quite see how Chris Wokes was selected in that squad for the Caribbean. When you look at his home and away stats, I mean, superb at home, absolutely superb. 94 wickets at 22 at home, 31 wickets at 52 away. Although, one thing that's interesting, he hasn't played a test match in the West Indies and they do use the Duke's ball in the West Indies. So that might be one of the reasons why he selected uh, to go to the Caribbean, and he he's younger and he can bat as well, and he t- helps sort of balance the side. So they, you know he does have uh, things in his favour. But if you just look away and home, they're actually quite brutal uh, statistics. But yeah, Stuart Broad having his say at the weekend, and <laughs> oh, he, he like he likes having a, a bit of a go, doesn't he? And and I think a lot of what he says is is totally valid. I sort of feel as an ex bowler that bowlers always get it in the neck. I mean, we've said this lots of times, that the batsmen fail and yet the bowlers are the ones that get dropped. And it's not only that, actually, but I think there's sometimes there's just a lack of gratitude. I mean, bowling is is physically so, so tough. I was just thinking about the number of days that you as a bowler don't feel pain of some kind. You can count on the fingers of one hand. And I don't actually think that selectors or captains ever really remember that or recognise it or even know it because most captains and selectors are a batsman most of them uh, I know you're just you know you're playing your violin there and I'm just not, looking around for a sympathy. violin but just but, looking but it, around it, for it one is, it, it's true it's true it, you know bowlers are cricket's labourers and they're not 
respected as much as, as they should be. But, I mean, I think in the case of uh, this, this Anderson and Broad issue, it, it actually, I think that there's almost sort of strength in numbers. I think with England's philosophy here or Strauss's philosophy here or maybe Root's philosophy here is if you only left one of those two great bowlers out, the other one would feel they were made the scapegoat for the Ashes' defeat. But by leaving them both out, you're saying, look, you know, we know you're brilliant bowlers. It's not your fault that we lost the Ashes 4-0, but we do want to find out about some other players. We know you've, we can re still rely on you to perform superbly in the summer, if that may, may be necessary. But we just want to try some other people. Now, I mean, going on to Wokes, uh, Wokes actually um, has a better record in England than either Broad or Anderson, with, with average-wise. And I think with him, it's more a case of his all-round ability because of Stokes's sort of slightly unpredictable, uncertain status as an all-rounder. You know, he tries his best to be a bowling or, you know, a frontline bowler, but it doesn't always work because of his fitness issues. So I think, you know, in a way, Wokes is important as a, another all-rounder who you can rely on. Yes, he's not. Uh, as potent as Anderson or Broad away from home, but he he is someone they can look to maybe to improve his game away from home. So obviously, you know, Wokes is really important to England, I think, for his all-rounder status. I think the point you make about it's always the bowlers that, that get the chop when the, the team fails and the, and the batters fail, and you make the point that it's tough being a bowler. I think, isn't that the point? That because it is so tough being a bowler, inevitably just there's a logic to it bowlers are going to get rotated more you can you have to rest and, and manage them whereas with batting it's not so physically demanding so you're not necessarily looking to to, to rest and rotate I think it, often it's as, as straightforward as that I mean it's not always the case I mean there there is a feeling sometimes that, you know why have I been why have I been dropped you know we've just been bowled out for 70 um, but you, you it is a physically uh, demanding uh, thing to do as indeed yours is wicketkeeping batting as well um, Sam Billings was in the virtual uh, cricket club last night he's another player that was left out of that uh, Caribbean tour there were some even suggesting that Sam Billings was a potential England captain and, and Stuart, <laughs> Stuart Broad was another one wasn't he he was spoken about as but you know if, if Joe Root were to stand down or be sacked or whatever that Stuart Broad is might be a short-term option Sam Billings is a possible option of course there's Ben Stokes as well but two of them are are not going to be there. Sam Billings getting his chance uh, in Australia. And it's all quite strange circumstances, yours. Yeah, it is, he's had a weird winter, hasn't he? Uh, coming uh, from England to go straight into the resumption of the IPL, which which led into the World T20, of course, in, in uh, the United Arab Emirates. Then he went over to Australia to play in the Big Bash and had a lot of success with Sydney Thunder. And in a way, I think he planned his winter quite well because he knew that there was the potential, he talked to the selectors, and I think he knew there was the potential that he being in Australia, uh, there could be an opportunity to, to join up with the England squad, and that surely uh, happened. And he got the opportunity to play in his first test, that last test of the series in Hobart, because of the injuries to Butler and, and to Bairstow. And he rather got the news out of the blue, and then had to make a marathon journey to realise his dream. Well, initially, so Saki Mahmood and I uh, were about to load the van up to, to go to Brisbane Airport to fly home uh, to do the uh, week safe living at home before the, uh, before the T20s in, in Barbados. And yeah, so get a call um, from Chris Silverwood and said, this is the situation, had about a 10 minute conversation with him. Uh, and then Gilo called me and then... Uh, manager Wayne called me as well and Wayne said well you've got to go to the Gold Coast airport now and uh, pick up the car and drive all the way down uh, I thought he was joking I said yeah good one just put me on the next flight to Sydney and, and I'll do my quarantine and we get on with it and he said no 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 you actually have to drive all the way down so a uh, 10 hour drive in front of me they wanted me to do it all in one day and I said well that's absolutely ridiculous um, so so yeah, off I went and uh, did a couple of days quarantine in Sydney and and then joined up with the lads and kind of the rest is history, I suppose. What was it like when you arrived in the team, um, in the team sort of core? What was the, what was the atmosphere like? 
I felt a little bit guilty, if I'm honest. Obviously, uh, growing up, everything we wanted to do, the 2005 Ashes, um, certainly for my generation, really um, kind of motivated you to really want to do that. And uh, yeah, it's the best moment of my career, making my test debut in the Ashes and uh, come into a team that's obviously pretty pretty down. Um, it's been a brutal series up to that point. But um, yeah, my job and, and the way I saw it was to just try and give a bit of po positive energy and um, yeah, a bit of a boost, I suppose, in any sort of way um, to try and get some sort of result in that last test. And uh, it wasn't to be, of course, but uh, yeah, anyone involved in, cr in cricket knows how brutal of a game it is, both as a team, but also as an individual. And um, yeah, I, I felt for the guys big time. Um, but like I said, I was trying to do everything I can to, to give to the team. Actually, I remember listening to, to Billings when he was keeping in that test match, uh, trying to be positive, uh, and he kept saying things like, uh, bang, bang, and, and they'll be four down or six down or whatever. Uh, never quite worked like that, obviously. But I, actually, I think his positive energy was, was, was something that, that must have helped England a bit, even just momentarily or temporarily in that test. And what he also said is that, what helped him is he's a well-travelled cricketer who's played in a lot of franchise cricket around the world and has met a lot of opposition players. And actually, his friendship with Pat Cummins, which will continue now uh, in the Kolkata Knight Riders team, which he's just been picked up for, uh, was a big help in combating uh, you know, the threat of Cummins in his first Test match. I'm very thankful to the amount of friendships I've had all over the world now. Um, cricket has has changed drastically in that respect that uh, I'm guessing guys that you used to play against um, yeah you didn't necessarily have those friendships but when you're on the same team as other people Pat Cummins is a guy I played club cricket with in, in Australia at the age of 21 and um, yeah he's Australian test captain sledging me in my first test but he's a genuinely really good mate of mine so I think that's the great thing these opportunities present. And um, it, it's just a huge positive for this kind of new world of cricket, I suppose. What was his sledge? What was his, what was his sledge? Do you know what it? So, I no, can't yeah, remember. It was, so in the morning of the, um, of the game, he sent me a scorecard that we played for Penrith versus Sutherland, which is Glenn McGrath's old um, club. Glenn McGrath Oval down in Sutherland, South Sydney. And... Yeah. Um, I got a duck, caught and bowled, one of the best catches I've ever got out to. And he got 100. And he said, uh, yeah, more of this this week, please, or whatever. And um, just said, yeah, I've always been better batter than you, or whatever. So, um, no, it was very funny. And uh, like I said, he's just a great guy. And, um, yeah, it was, it's, it's great to be able to call those guys mates. On the field, you're absolutely not. But as soon as you're off it, um, you can have a drink and kind of and have a chat. God, you must have loved. I think you hit him for at least one four back past him, didn't you? Two in a row. Simon, Two in a row. Come on, yeah. Simon. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't remember if it was him or um, uh, Boland, actually, but I knew you'd hit a couple of princely off drives. Very nice. Yeah, I let him know about it as well. I bet yeah. you did. There I you bet go. you did. <laughs> did. Did you think before that you got that call that your test chances had gone? Not necessarily. Um, I, I'd been around the team last summer at home. Um, I was pretty disappointed not to not to get a go at the start of the summer against New Zealand. Uh, um, but yeah, it was it was one of those um, things that I don't know. You, it, things can change so quickly, and I think right now we've actually got a bit of clarity around. Uh, the wicket keeping position, Ben folks deservedly so gets gets a good run in the side and um, he's been waiting in the wings. I know that feeling all too well, but uh, he he absolutely deserves his chance to kind of make it his own. but if he if he wasn't to take his opportunity um, like any position, um, people are people will be there to to provide competition and that's what strong sides do in every single position. so so for me moving forward, um, yeah, I, I see that really uh, depends on how kind of Ben goes and, and then we'll reassess. But it's certainly something I want to um, to absolutely do again and, and 
yeah, pull on the whites for sure. It's just, it's a really difficult situation to be in at the moment um, with, with obviously not being picked and then the IPL and uh, you've got to make these decisions. And um, yeah, at the moment, based on kind of recent selection, the, the IPL is the best bet. And I, I, it must be weird. So, you know, one minute you'll get the disappointing call that you are not in the West Indies squad. Were you called about that? And was it explained to you what what the situation was? Yeah, uh, I had a, had a call. I was actually, uh, yeah, on the golf course. Um, I was two down on the Were golf you course. I, did, I didn't, know, didn't know which was more disappointing. Um, but, uh, yeah, got a... Uh, got the call, uh, had about a five minute conversation and, and then uh, I've been in communication with with um, Strauss this week and had a really, really honest and um, clear chat, I suppose. And I've always respected Strauss hugely. Um, he's, he was absolutely exceptional in, in that role uh, the first time he had it. And the honesty always comes with a real... Um, kind of progressive nature to it uh there's there's always that that thing of right moving forward what what does it look like as an individual and as a player and um that's something i i value hugely and, and honesty is is absolutely priceless so um it was a really good conversation for about 20 minutes but like i said it was is more clarity around uh, the wicket keeping position and and uh, knowing that kind of ben has that extended run and um mm. And then it's it's up to up for reassessing, depending on a load of factors. So, uh, so yeah, it definitely helps my mind uh, with with where that is. So, sort of disappointment laced with you know positive sort of optimism, I suppose. But then you get the news from India soon after. I uh, a bit like uh, I suppose the NFL draft, where you see someone call you from whatever franchise. Uh, I got a call from uh, one of the guys from Kolkata and. Uh, so welcome and uh, and then obviously kind of the Twitter and, and everything goes mad so um, yeah it's nice to get that call and uh, meet the team and and by by all accounts Kolkata is as good a franchise to be a part of as anyone um, yeah so, I mean they're I mean, very the, um, they're quite progressive aren't they I mean that they they own a, a Caribbean franchise and I feel that you know looking at looking around at the different teams that they they sort of do their sort of homework quite carefully and they're a very professional operation. I'd hope so. They've got Nathan Lehman, who's obviously the yeah, ECB uh, head analyst on, on board now. Wayne Bentley's our manager at England as well. Brendan McCullum's head coach, yeah. uh, James Foster's assistant coach. Okay. Um, so, yeah. yeah, it's brilliant to have him there. I get on really well, work really mm. well with him as well. So, in terms of a kind of an English core, uh, you've seen the Australians dominate the IPL in terms of overseas coaches, but it's nice to um, see actually a lot of staff from, from England set up now get opportunities. You talked about clarity earlier. In not a too distant future, players are going to have to decide between white and red ball and uh, you know focus on one or the other. And in a way... If the two formats are, the two types of cricket are sort of diverging more and more, is it going to be harder in the future for people to play both? 100%. It already is way too hard. You look at um, how many guys cross over successfully uh, from format to format. I'd say at a world-class level, you've probably got five. Um, that'd be Kane Williamson, Joe Root really? has now obviously not playing T20 yeah. international cricket, not playing that much. Um, Coley, yeah, but on the flip side of it, he's struggled for form lately. True. Um, in terms of managing uh, your energy and your longevity as a player, it's it's practically impossible to play every single format. And um, yeah, I, I think there will be, I, like anything, I think at the moment, the amount of cricket that's being played has just been accelerated. And, and there are, I mean, my example of playing in the test match and then flying straight to the West Indies. And, and there'll be times this year where England will have a Red Bull game followed more or less at the same time, if not straight after with a white ball game. Um, so they are essentially two different, um, two different teams. So as a player, it, it, 
absolutely it is impossible to to do everything and um like i said very few can do mm. every single format at a world class level so picking up on, on what sam billings was talking about there about the way that you know the game is diverging more and more between red and white ball which we we discussed a fair bit but it does require batsmen and bowlers to prepare totally differently doesn't it um and it must be quite hard for them. In fact, Billings talks about in his longer interview, which you can see if you go to the world's best cricket club.com and the whole interview is published there. It's three pounds a month to join, but you do get a live interview every week. World's best cricket club.com. And one of the things he mentions actually is that, uh, in fact, the best way of, uh, approaching all these different formats is to simplify your preparation and try and keep it similar whatever format you're playing and he, he illustrates Joss Butler as a good example of that but uh, someone who basically relies on hitting the ball straight and just getting some basics going whatever match he's playing in to try and prepare for it uh, it hasn't entirely worked for, for Butler in test cricket I suppose but you've got to try and to keep it as simple as possible because Otherwise, you just do your, you do your own head in, I guess. I mean, realistically, do you, do you think someone like Sam Billings, I mean, he's, well, he made his test debut at the age of 30, in unusual circumstances, he happened to be in the right place at the right time. I mean, he talks about you know that divergence, you know, focusing on red ball or white ball cricket. He is someone you can see just being essentially a white ball cricketer. I mean, of course he wants to play for England, and who, who knows what's going to happen down the line. He was talking there about Ben Folkes. You know, ben Folkes is going to get his chance, it sounds like, in, in the Caribbean. But, and if it doesn't work out for Ben Folkes, then perhaps Sam Billings is someone they might uh, go back to. He also said there that he was disappointed not to play last summer. I remember James Bracey kept wicket in the Test Series against New Zealand. That didn't work out. Sam Billings might have got his chance there. But, I mean, essentially, 30 years of age, one Test match so far, what, 50-odd white ball games for England. I mean, actually, in a way, do you not see him as being a sort of the classic white ball focused cricketer in the future yeah i mean you do but i think if he if i was him and i i he, he grew up as he said you know watching the 2005 ashes and really getting into that if i was him i'd sort of still covet playing test cricket because you discover more about yourself in a test match i think in the end you know you discover your mental faculties and your ability to adapt to different situations and weather conditions and bowling attacks and pitches changing I think it's it's a sort of rite of passage in a way, isn't it, playing test cricket? Whereas one day cricket, especially T20, is so much more forgettable. I mean, yes, it's it's a thrill when you produce that 35 off 12 balls to win the game or take a brilliant catch or take, you know, two wickets and an over or something. It is thrilling, but it doesn't leave you with that deeper feeling of satisfaction which you sense when you watch a series like the 2005 Ashes where you see it unfolding over you know, 30 or 40 days uh, over the sort of period of the five tests. And you see uh, duels going on between players and somebody overcoming the, the, their difficulties or a particular bowler or a particular situation. And then another bowler coming back and, and giving you problems. And you have to keep adapting. Um, I, you do have to keep adapting in one day cricket in shorter formats, but it's less of a mental taxing thing. And therefore, I think it leaves you with less stimulation, less satisfaction in the end. I suppose one thing Sam Billings uh, can say, and it's something Ben Stokes uh, said after his incredible double hundred at, at Cape Town. He was asked in the press conference afterwards about, you know, you've got a lot to live up to now after coming up with an innings like that. And he said, well, at least I've done it once. Now, the news obviously coming out of India over the weekend was astonishing prices for certain players, some of whom are a little heard of. Uh, I noticed Mike Atherton in the, the, the Times today has written about Tim David, who raised a price of £860,000, I think, round about a million dollars, to be picked up by Mumbai Indians. Here's a guy who hasn't played any international cricket. In fact, he hasn't even played any first-class cricket. He's played a little bit. Well, I say he hasn't played international kid. He's played for Singapore, where he was born, but he hasn't played for a test match playing country and he hasn't played any first class cricket either. And he's uh, attracted a, a massive bid. Why? Well, I saw him hit in the final of the 100 last summer 
for Southern Braves, the biggest six I have ever seen. It went over the mound stand and into St John's Wood Road at Lords. Uh, I've never seen anyone do that before, and I must have seen hundreds of games of cricket at Lords. Uh, he is a an enormous striker of the ball, and and also actually a brilliant fielder as well. And he's he's a specialist in that sort of number five role in short formats where you can come in and just blitz it straight away. And there aren't many players who can do that. So that's one reason why he would have raised a lot of money there. You know, Liam Livingston, another one. And he was the, the top priced foreign player, right, getting a, a bid of one and a half million dollars. So he's riding off into the sunset, a, a, a much richer man than he would have been uh, last week. But. It's a fascinating process, that whole business of buying players in an auction. And some people find it a bit vulgar, actually. Do you? I think you know the rules, don't you? You put yourself forward. You don't You don't have to go into the auction if you don't want to. And then when you do, it, it's up to the, the bidders to find the right price for you, the, the price that, that works for you. Uh, it's just it's it's part of the IPL, isn't it? It's, it's, it's part of a, a, a new way of, of doing things. So, no, I, is it... You could argue the, the amounts of money seem uh, extreme, but it's, it's just a, it's a way of it's a way of evening. Well, the idea is is to even things up, isn't it? You have a huge auction. Uh, you, you, obviously, in football, you have transfers between teams, but you, it's all that consolidates a power base. But in, in in this way, the idea is to shake it all up, try to even out the teams, so you have different winners and, and a very competitive competition. I mean, that's one of the the, the mainstays behind mm. it, as we've talked. You know, many times on this podcast it's not like the Premier League where you have teams dominate uh, potentially for a very long time the idea is yeah you have a, a, a certain equality if you can get your if you can get your bidding right you can go from zero to hero in terms of a team um, and that and actually that is what uh, the Rajasthan Royals are trying to do I know you've been speaking to Manoj Badali and he, he talked about the planning uh, that goes into preparing for the auction. I mean, you could argue it starts at the end of the previous season, but 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 in reality, um, sort of two to three months before the auction's coming along, most teams are doing uh, doing their research and their analysis. And I think what's changed dramatically over the uh, sort of twelve to thirteen years of the IPL is the extent of that preparation. I mean, I remember back in the day, the very first auction. You know, teams was clearly just reacting to prices of players, um, you know, in real time. I can remember looking at certain teams' compositions and thinking they haven't even got a shape of a side in place. But, you know, now the preparation that everyone does is the same. I mean, essentially, there's, there's a lot of received wisdom now about the typical shape of a T20 side. Players, will, teams will do their own valuation models now. Uh, there's a number of external providers that are out in the marketplace feeding you different bits of data. Uh, the change for us this year was that for the first time, we've uh, we've in-housed uh, a lot of our data science and analytics capabilities. Uh, we've also teamed up with uh, an outfit called Zealous, who uh, come out of the Billy Bean stable. Billy and uh, his partners, Redbird, recently invested in the Royal. So we work quite closely with those guys, as well as our usual partners, Kadamba. Uh, and so we had a pretty large team of people doing player valuation models, do it looking at different team compositions. And so that's that process takes two to three months. And then what most teams will do, not least because uh, you and I wrote about it in the book that we published, uh, is most teams will then do some sort of practice mock auctions, as it were, to look at uh, to look at how you might uh, how you might bid for certain players. Uh, but you can't, you, your, your, your ultimate preparation really can't take place until the week, 10 days before when you've got the final list of players and very importantly, the final list of players by lot. Because as, as, as we explained in the book, you know, a player's value on the day is driven by three or four things. It's driven by obviously their skills and capability and stats. It's also driven by which lot they're in because... The earlier you come, the more money teams have got. It's then also driven by the demand and supply for that specific position. So if you look, for example, at elite Indian leg spinners this year, 
there was a relatively short supply of that relative to the fact that every team wants at least one. And then, and then it's driven by a bit of luck, right? The luck being what happens when, where you come out within a lot. So if you're the last wicketkeeper batsman to come out and there are two teams that desperately need a wicketkeeper batsman, you may not be the most valuable player in that lot, but you may do very well. And we saw quite a lot of that on Saturday, actually, which is why I think from the outside, people have such a hard time assessing the IPL auction because they look at the price of player X versus player Y and they go, how can that be? And then when I say, well, player X came out in lot two, player Y came out in lot 14, that doesn't really mean much to someone unless you've actually visualised the auction. So an example of a player who uh, has a sort of scarce value, I suppose, would be one that you bought, um, Hetmeyer from yeah. the West Indies, who went for a big, big, uh, big price, like one and a half million dollars or something. So I guess he has that sort of rarity uh, skill of coming in at number five and being able to score at two runs a ball per, from the start. And there aren't that many players like that. Yeah, it's not just that. It's the ability to be at about four, five or six, because increasingly, you know, I think cricket is hamstrung by so many traditions, uh, one of which is batting order, right? We're obsessed with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, when actually what's much more important is what phase of play you're coming in at. So, you know, if you're two down and you're in over 16, you still want, you want Hetmeyer to come in at four. And if you're four down and you're in over 16, you want Hetmeyer to come in. So, so he's particularly strong at the back end, but he's also unusual in that he can play and score quickly off both pace and spin. So there are lots of players that can do that off of one or the other, but not many that can do it off both. And as you know, on Indian conditions, you know, you can have a leg spinner bowling 15, over 15, 16, and possibly even 17. So, uh, and then he's left-handed as well, which means you've got that, that ability to maintain that left-right combination. So, so he is an unusually uh, attractive player. What about players and their pricing? I mean, yeah. people would be sort of surprised that someone like Morgan didn't get picked or Adil Rashid, you know, looking at it from an English perspective. Yeah. Is that, is that a problem with pricing? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think I th the, the examples you've given, there's sort of slightly different points to make. But what one point I've always made to players is, you know, if you're not 100% sure of getting picked, keep your base price as low as possible because there's a sort of psychology of how the room works where when your name's announced, if there's, you know, if there's too much hesitation before a single bid is placed, the probability of you going unsold so that people can have a look at you later on when they know how much money they've got left goes up dramatically. So you take a player like Sam Billings, you know, he's never, you know, he's not going to be assured into a first eleven. So he's really in the auction to be a backup player for one of the franchises. Now, I, I have to think he's a fantastic uh, player. And, he, and it, given that he can wicket keep as well, he's got two skills. And actually, I would have expected him to get picked up by one of the franchises, probably as a backup uh, wicket keeper bat. Early on. Well, yeah, or, 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 or just when he came out. I mean, not yeah. that early on, just when he came out. Because... But, but I was surprised he put his base price at two crores, which is the top base price, because that makes the decision about having you as a backup player a much bigger decision, because you're looking to spend somewhere between one and two crores on your backup players. I think if he put his price at 50 or 60 lakhs, or he would have almost certainly got two bids. The minute you get two bids, no one's going to lose a player for another 50 or 60 lakhs. So you end up at the same point where he probably would have got bought for two crawls or slightly more. Um, but I remember talking to, 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 to Livy and his agent and saying, you know, don't, don't be too greedy with your base price and, and look at where Livingston ended up. The, the, the other two factors, though, are, you know, English players will always get a discount because there's availability questions around them. That really, for example, that really hurt us in the last three years. I mean, we, we've been slammed over our performances in the last two to three years. And, you know, I still maintain if, if we'd had 100% availability of our best players, uh, we would have performed very differently. Uh, and so English players get a natural discount because of availability and, and, and also the unpredictability of their availability is a real problem, actually. Um, you, look at, you look at us in the first year when Butler got us into the playoffs and then gets picked for the test squad and 
you know, that messes up your plans. And, that is, and then the, th- the third issue is, again, what role you play. I come mm-hmm. back to something like it. And like Adil Rashid is unquestionably one of the best two or three kind of international leg spinners in World T20 cricket. But there are a lot of good leg spinners, a lot, a lot of good Indian leg spinners. And so, uh, whereas historically you found the Indian franchises targeting their overseas slots at quick bowlers, at middle, middle over power players, um, and then at least one at the top of the innings. And so you haven't seen many franchises play 14 games with an overseas leg spinner. And that's the problem with someone like Adil or an Adam Zampa, who are you know, world-class players. You, you assembled a good, a good squad. Um, who was the one player who got away who you were desperate to get? If I answer a different question first, which is the player that we got on the first day, who we never, ever thought we would be able to get, was Yuzi Chahal. I mean, all of our simulations, he was going, uh, and I'm still shocked he didn't go for, you know, more than 10 crores. So uh, having bought Ashwin in the first lot, we actually had a different strategy for our sort of leg spinner. Uh, we were going to uh, go for a, for, a, for a much lower cost leg spinner. Uh, so that was the player that we, we, we had to react to in the moment. It doesn't matter how much planning you do, the nature of the auction means you've got to react in real time. The player that got away for us was definitely on the, on the Sunday in the sense that uh, I think we, uh, we had a less good Sunday because we got caught, you know, it's the same as business. When you don't completely commit to a strategy, you often get undone and, we clearly, after Saturday, needed you know a fast bowling uh, all rounder who who could power hit at sort of number six or seven. Uh, we went hard for Odin Smith. We went hard for Mario Shepherd. Uh, but because part, partly for emotion, partly because he is one of the two best T Twenty players in the world, we wanted to sort. We sort of held out uh, belief that we might be able to sneak Joffre at the end. We didn't completely commit to that strategy, and I think if we had, we would have. Uh, uh, we would have got you know one of those two players, so that's probably the one we missed. <laughs> and I suppose it's quite um, it's, it was quite a sort of tumultuous, uh, uh, important auction, really, because a you got two new teams, and and b is there a sense that a lot more of these players are going to stay with their franchises now for a number of years? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't know much more than you do on that, yours, but there is definitely a rumor that that would be the last auction. So there was that uh, there was that added pressure, which is why I think some of the younger players, especially some of the younger domestic players, attracted such big prices. You know, even though they haven't played IPL, or uh, even though they came quite late in the auction. So you know, players like Tilik Burma and, and others, you know, because people are sort of hoping that they're going to mature. The particular problem for us was because that that's that's a very Rajasthan Royals strategy, which is to buy young and give them a platform and mm. but because we performed so badly in the last three years we felt that our priority this year was very clearly our first level so if you look at what we spent on our first level this year it was close to 90 percent of the purse uh, whereas if you look at that in 2018 that that comparative number is about 60 percent and so i think where uh, where we were a little bit different i think to some of the other franchises we, you know we couldn't afford another another year of sort of hoping uh, that some of these younger players would sort of break through. We decided our priority was experience, an experienced Indian core. So that made it even harder for us because, and not to make any excuses, I'm just saying it was sort of our, our strategy meant we had to, you know, we had to go early and spend quick and spend on a relatively small number of players, which we did. I think you actually did all right at the end as well, because you picked up um, Jimmy Neesham and, Daryl Mitchell and I, I like Jimmy Neesham. I think he he's someone who's gonna he's a little bit of a dark horse. He's gonna be in that side at some point, I reckon, and he'll produce because he's just a, just a really good character and a really good all round thinker as well as executor. So yeah, look at right you know, again. He's he's he gets a great write up from uh, from Rich Sodi and and, mm. and you know, other people that we that we both know. You know, there aren't many. Uh, many New Zealanders that don't really fit well into a sort of team environment. So we're excited to have him. 
Uh, funny enough, his numbers are not. You know, they're not. They're no, not, they're, not. they're not actually that good. I know, but I just think he's someone who's he's got a really good personality, and yeah. he, I think he'll he'll make people gel together. So so that's good. And uh, just just finally on the tournament itself. So how is it? What's it going to be like? It, it's all the matches are playing in Mumbai. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, it's no question. It's not an optimal thing, right? I mean, the IPL is best when it's in India. It's best when you've got the passion of the home fans. You know, we haven't been to Jaipur for three years. You know, we're desperate to get back and play there. It's great to have a bit of home advantage, have different wickets. You know, you're playing on the bounce in Chinaswami and or, or, you know, all the pace of Mumbai versus the spinner. The Wai Man Singh in Jaipur. I mean, I mean that, that that's the beauty of the IPL. But you know, look, there's much bigger problems the world's got than whether or not the IPL can take place. And so we've got to be uh, got to be respectful of the tournament organisers, just getting it getting it done in whatever way is possible. And I think the latest that we were told at the owners' grouping a couple of weeks ago is that you know Plan A is three venues in Mumbai and then a venue in uh, Pune. Uh, so that the teams can be, you know, they, they can create simpler bubbles. It takes the risk of domestic flying in and around out. But um, mm. look, I think if it's if it gets back to India, that will be uh, that will be an achievement to be celebrated in of itself. And obviously, crowds and things, you know, hopefully, pretty pretty big crowds will add the the colour to it. And um, I mean, it, it goes from strength to the strength, doesn't it? The, the uh, the, the the TV figures, the advertising sponsorship figures have been astonishing, haven't they? Yeah, look, it's the tournament's definitely in uh, in good shape. But you can't be complacent. I mean, it's the you know, it's like any sort of incumbency or any market leadership. The minute you uh, get complacent, you die. And, and so there are plenty of innovations happening all over the game of cricket. There are plenty of innovations happening in sport across the board. So. You know, we have some unique advantages. I mean, we've got the billion two population. We've got the sort of monopoly position in the calendar uh, around that time frame. We've added two teams, which is going to be interesting. That's going to present some positives and some negatives. I mean, the positives are more opportunity to see so many players who wouldn't otherwise get a chance to perform, you know, on that stage. Uh, I think the two new teams will bring bring new innovations and new thoughts into the league, which is always good. They're both extraordinarily professional sets of ownership groups that uh, and management teams. So I'm sort of excited to have that come into the league. The challenge, of course, is the tournament gets longer and there'll be more day games. One of the beauties of the IPL has been its ability to sustain interest. And you've seen what's happened to the Big Bash where, you know, when tournaments get too long, you know, you kind of interest ebbs and flows and so there'll be some new challenges uh, logistically, uh, although, of course, that's not going to be the case this year, but logistically, 10 teams, 10 ven- venues, uh, you know, adds, uh, it adds a few challenges as well. So, you know, I think there is, like anything, there's, there, there is a finite size to which things can get to, and you just don't want to, uh, you don't want to get too greedy. How important is it for an owner to, to actually, you know, to win it? Look, I think, uh, I don't know about for an owner, I think for a franchise, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, your, 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 your value, your appeal to fans is, is driven by your on-field performance. And so it's, it has to be uh, the primary focus. I mean, the Royals haven't been great the last two or three years. And yet, I presume, has there been any drop-off in the support and enthusiasm for the, for the franchise? You like to believe not, but I think the reality is it has to be the case, right? I mean, uh, you know, who wants to support a loser? I mean, you'll always have your regional kind of catchment area. But one of the things that's always been special about the Royals has been our sort of global appeal, but also our appeal across India. I mean, for many, many years, all of the consumer research would say we were sort of everyone's second favourite team, which is, you know, it's not a bad place to be, which is, you know, most popular team in Rajasthan and, you know, second favourite team in lots of other parts of the country. That's that's a pretty good place to be. And, and a lot of that was because of our sort of win from anywhere, our reputation of winning big games, our reputation for promoting young players. But at the end of the day, you know, when you start finishing seventh and eighth and sixth year after year, then, uh, uh, you know, people's loyalties quickly change. I mean, especially amongst the kids, right? 
And that's what it's all about. So that's Manoj Badali, born in India, but very much raised uh, in England and went to school in England as well and runs a, a series of businesses in West London. And we wrote the book together, A New Innings, which looked at the whole process of how the IPL works and the kind of lessons that sport in general can learn from what the IPL has achieved. And it's now valued at something like five billion in its uh, value as a as a brand and the next rights the tv rights for the ipl are pending and they will probably realize something in the region of five billion dollars as well which is you know a huge sum similar to sort of the premier league what that raises for you know three or four year contract so it is an incredibly valuable property in the world in, in the world sports arena actually and obviously the process of selecting teams is fascinating in, in this way that you have this pot of money and actually, you know, some teams kind of, everybody prepares for it in a slightly different way, but it is a very serious business using a lot of mathematics and analytics to try and figure out players who are overvalued or undervalued. And then there's a, there's a sort of almost surge of interest at the end of the auction process when lots of people who are unbought suddenly snapped up for small amounts of money so you do get massive discrepancies in the prices that that people are bought for there's players that have been bought for two million dollars and players have been bought for twenty thousand dollars it's it's weird i mean the what you asked me that question earlier about you know is it is the auction a sort of obscene or vulgar i suppose that's the one thing you might say how much that creates a problem within your team I and mean, if you're a player thinks hold on i actually think i'm a better player than him but he's getting paid i don't know 20 times more than me or if the season goes on and you're doing well and the other player is not doing particularly well you think oh, well hold on i'm churning this out for not much money but i suppose the idea is, is that in future auctions that you are the the big winner and you know whatever someone else falls by the wayside yeah i mean it's not easy managing players um with this sorts of inequality going on and what teams try to do is promise players you know good bonuses if they perform well and the team you know gets into the playoffs or something then the the players who are lower paid get disproportionately more bonus than the higher paid players but it's not easy making it fair the other thing I thought was interesting in Manoj's interview, and I, actually he, he does talk really interestingly about the whole process of the IPL auction and, and, and the competition itself as well, is, is the fact that it sounds to me as though Rajasthan are fed up with losing. They, they've just they've had enough. He said, you know, we've, we've sort of focused, you know, we, we looked to develop young players in the past, and, but actually he, he's saying we, we really need a strong first 11, and that's what they focused on, seem to have focused on in this IPL auction. They've got Sanju Sampson is their captain, and a bit of a New Zealand element to the side as well, with Bolt, Mitchell, and Nisham. Uh, they've got Ashwin, and they've got Yuzvendra uh, Chahal. He mentioned him in the interviews. They've got a couple of decent spinners there, and, and they've got Josh Butler. No Ben Stokes this time. There's that sort of, the English core has been taken away, and he, he, he sort of explained that, didn't he? That uh, the, the problem with the England players is that how much are they are going to be available and they've been caught out by that in the past so what they've done this time is perhaps a slightly stronger New Zealand core to their overseas and, uh, and player of course, you roster. Know, that, that, that in a way marries back to what we were saying at the start or earlier in this show about divergence and the fact that you're not sure with some of the England players particularly you're not sure whether they are still loyal to their test team whether they still want to play test cricket as in, say, Butler's case in past years, and therefore, and Stokes, obviously, as well, and Archer. So are they going to lose them uh, towards the end of the IPL because they're going to go back and play test cricket? And, you know, Manoj's point, in a way, is if players in the future can be clearer about what their priorities are, then certainly for England players, whose summer clashes with the IPL, they will have more chance of, of getting snapped up by an IPL franchise. Yeah, I think the other thing that I thought was interesting in, in Manoj's interview was what he said at the end there about no room for complacency. This is, is going to be an expanded IPL, uh, 10 teams this time round, playing 14 matches. So we reckon that's 74 games as it was in the 2011 
IPL. Last time it was 60 games. It's going to take two months to get through. I, I note that uh, Lachlan Henderson, who's the new chair of Cricket Australia, has, has today said that you know they're considering shortening the, the Big Bash season. So what, what I like about Manoj is he's not the IPL is, is this, it's that, it's you know, and it's not hype with him. There's actually quite a sort of cool, a sort of ruthless business head there. You know, we need to be careful. We can't we can't be complacent. It it seems to be working, but you you never know. You've got to keep adapting. You've got to see what's working and if, if it's not working then change it'd be fascinating to see actually whether cricket australia do reduce the big bash because i think that's one of the things that i've noted because i've covered a lot of big bash cricket in in, in mm. recent years just a sense that it's not quite the the draw that it was i i, I went to the first match uh, this year in, in sydney we, we did the game on bbc radio melbourne stars we got some decent players playing against the, the sydney sixers who were the defending champions at the sydney cricket ground Sunday night okay it started a bit late because of there was a for some TV scheduling reason the game started about quarter past seven so it finished quite late half past seven it might have even started half past seven and the crowd I thought wow this is not you know there are just not that many people in the ground okay I know there was Covid was just beginning to sort of pop its head round the door again in, in Australia at that time there were very few cases but I just thought this has lost some of its pizzazz. So I suppose that at the moment there's there's no obvious sign of that in something like the IPL. And actually going you know it's going back to India, isn't it? Uh, albeit in a sort of slightly different form. Um, so they've been starred of it as well. The the, the fans going to the grounds. Um, yeah. Can can you can you play too much of it? Well, you can. Uh, no, you absolutely can. And less is more, which is. Um, a mantra which is very much lost on a lot of administrators in sport generally who, you know, there's too much greed still. But how much is, I think the whole point about it is is getting that balance, isn't it? How much is less? How much is too much? And what what you tend to find is that people, that they'll always sort of push it and go, yeah, we want want a bit more. I think, you know, I think it's happened with T20. I mean, who knows with the 100? There were relatively few matches, weren't there, in the 100? But it will, if if it's a success again, a couple of seasons, will the temptation be to play more hundred matches? I don't know. And then will that kill it? And then you have to adapt again. But perhaps our sport is, and it's something it's a theme of this podcast has been ever since we've been going is how cricket is always adapted and always. It's, it's a traditional sport, but it is a sport that changes so much, changes the whole time. Yeah, and in the spirit of less is more. I think it's time to say goodbye, don't you? So thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you this time next week. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. Podcast Network.